Welcome to Voir Dire, Conversations from the Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Robert Sampson, a professor at Harvard University and the author of a new study, The Birth Lottery of History. We're talking about the study because it provides groundbreaking evidence that historical context drives crime and arrest rates in a way that really hasn't been examined before. So the study challenges our traditional conception of individual responsibility and forces us to rethink some fundamental ways of doing business in the criminal justice system, things like predictive technology, etc. So I'm excited to be bringing you the conversation. Professor Sampson, I wanted to just start off very high level. You refer to the results of your study as the birth lottery of history. What does that mean? Uh, so what we're really aiming to do at a high level is to grasp the intersection of history and biography and social change within the lives of individuals. Historians, of course, have long been interested in historical changes, and there's been a lot written on that with respect to crime. And then there's been a literature that I've been heavily involved with over my career, as have a lot of scholars, not just in sociology, criminology, psychology, human development, that are concerned with the developmental course of human behavior, not just crime, but what it's like for kids to grow up. But it tends to be, for the most part, focused on single cohorts. And that might seem like a fine idea, and I've done it myself, but the problem with that is that as we age, time marches on. And what it means is that our development is confounded with the historical changes that are taking place as we age. And so at a conceptual level, the idea of this project is to examine empirically, but also to think theoretically about what is it like to turn 16 or turn 18 in, let's say, the mid-90s in a city like Chicago, which at the time was seeing an explosion of violence, had a particular historical setting that I argue is, is very important in understanding what it's like to turn 16 or 18 then, as opposed to the very same age, so the same sort of developmental profile, a short term later. So in this case, let's say in the, in the 2000s, early 2000s, it's a very different social world with respect to crime and even incarceration. Furthermore, if you think about our, our typical understandings of why people commit crime or how they get involved in, let's say, the criminal justice system, why they're arrested, while they're, why they are incarcerated, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the theoretical work is around characteristics of of the individuals, things like criminal propensity, the character of individuals. But the point is that cohorts can differ in those characteristics in ways that don't have anything to do with social change. What I'm arguing, or what we're arguing in the study, is that taking that into account, or sort of setting aside those differences in the compositional early life experiences, it's the trajectory of what's happening in later adolescence and early adulthood at that historical moment, it's the interaction of aging, and particularly in later adolescence and early adulthood, with social change at the time. And that's, in a sense, why we use the term the birth lottery of history, because just like we don't choose our families of origin, we don't choose our times or how they're going to change. 
So can you describe then the study, what, what you did and who you were looking at? Sure. So let me give you a little sense of the architecture of the study because it's a complicated study, but it was based on a fairly simple idea. It goes back to the 1990s. We enrolled at the beginning women that were pregnant at the time or who had had children born within you know, about six months. So literally kids that were born in 1995. Then we looked at three-year-olds, six-year-olds, nine, 12, 15, and 18-year-olds. And then each cohort was followed through time. Those kids were selected. Then they were studied. Their parents or caretakers were studied. There was intensive interviews and assessments. Over 6,000 children were involved. They were followed no matter where they moved, whether it uh, was in Chicago or other part of Illinois or back to uh, California, Mexico. So it was a massive undertaking. And then the short story is as of March or February of this year, we completed another assessment of the criminal histories for a subsample of, of the kids. So given the rich amount of information, and there's an intense amount of information on the individual's characteristics, their family characteristics, like income and family status, immigration status. We have measures of the parents' behavioral reports of the kids. So we measure things like anxiety and depression, antisocial behavior, self-control or impulsivity. So we're able to tap into those individual characteristics that are often thought to be crucial for individual outcomes. And then we do this for all the different cohorts. And to simplify, I guess, one way to conceptualize it is to say that we equated the kids across the different cohorts. So think of it as kids that had the same poverty status and the same family structure, upbringing, early childhood life experiences, exposure to neighborhood violence. And this varied, by the way, the cohorts do vary. The younger cohorts age through lower violence in their neighborhoods compared to the older cohorts. But despite that, when we compared that, we found that, for example, the arrest rates of the older cohorts were anywhere from 75 to about 100%, almost double the arrest rates of the other kids. And that's important because it means that it's not a function of their individual dispositions, their demography, and all, or all the usual suspects, but rather the difference is, is due to that historical shift, hence the birth lottery of history. We also looked at not just their rate, if you will, um, or probability of getting in trouble, with the criminal justice system. But we also took on some of the foundational arguments about the types of offenders or the types of criminals, uh, if I could put it that way, maybe in quotes that exist out there. Most listeners have probably heard of the concept of chronic offenders, the idea that a small proportion of kids account for the majority of offenses. And so if we can just identify those kids at an early age, we'll be able to stop crime. It is a huge and popular crime policy idea that's really been out there for decades. So we looked at the typologies or the trajectories of kids, how they were differentiated. And indeed, we see that there is something we might call the chronic offender and adolescent limited offenders and non-offenders. But again, the differences by history were much larger than the traditional characteristics that we usually use to predict those things. So meaning that even folks that you would call chronic offenders, those that were born in the 80s, were more likely to have more offenses than those born in the 90s. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And 
what we're arguing is that it's a function of the macro social context of the time, not just their individual characteristics. And we, we're not saying, by the way, that individual disposition or factors like poverty are important. The fundamental idea here is to really try to understand the interaction of the life course with these larger social changes. Again, it, it's almost as if a lot of social science is bifurcated into the macro social and then the individual development studying single cohorts. The ambition here is to try to merge these together. It's not easy, but I think it's important to try. And let me give you an example of two findings that attempt to merge this. One is, let me go back to this notion of uh, self-control. And so what we found is that the theorists that assert that early childhood self-control, or let's call it grid, is important are right in the sense that net of a person's poverty and family status, other characteristics, we show that kids with higher self-control or lower impulsivity have significantly lower rates of arrest. So there is sort of a clear pathway from low self-control to trouble with the law, as has been asserted. But we're asking the reader to, in, in a sense, flip it around. And what we found was that it was almost a switch whereby the high self-control kids, let's say the 90s, coming up in that era of extreme violence, police aggression, really fast increasing rates of incarceration, had basically the same level of arrest as the low self-control kids of just 10 years later in the next generation. So if you think about it, what it means is that the manifestations or the consequences of, let's say, an individual's lack of self-control is dependent then in a fundamental way on that larger environment. So if you look back and you say, well, yeah, it's kind of obvious that history matters, but then that just begs the question, why do our policies, our practices, our theories just set it in the background and don't take it into account? And that can have really pernicious consequences, not just for our theories, but for policy. We're working right now on prediction and how biases in the criminal justice system at all stages are present in ways that we hadn't really considered based on what I would Oh, cohort bias as opposed to things like racial bias or class bias. So let's get to prediction in a second, because I want to make sure that we've explicated the study uh, mm -hmm. and findings before we talk about its implications. I guess this is a two-part question. Tell me about some of the things that you're controlling for across the cohorts, and then tell me, having eliminated those items from the analysis, what is it about history then that you think is, is driving this decline in, in arrest rates that you saw over time? Yeah, great question. So in terms of, of the control, basically what we did was to set up the study to address all of the sort of standard predictors of crime, which is not to say that you know, any one study can, can do it all. But we started with things like demography in terms of race, ethnicity, immigrant status, gender, all the usual suspects there, then family characteristics, income, poverty, education, the parent, family structure, whether the caretaker was married, divorced, the setup of the household, household size, home ownership, all characteristics you might think of as family structure, socioeconomic status, setting. Furthermore, we took into account the troubles, if you will, that the parents had with life in the criminal justice system. Something that is fairly unique to our study at the time of, of the original interviews, we asked the parents 
or caretakers, and we got a detailed legal history and institutional history. So whether they were in trouble with employment, trouble with the law, whether they had been arrested, whether they were in jail, whether they were incarcerated, we can separate out whether the parent was arrested, the mother, the father, we have grandparents, we have the number of people in the family that were arrested, SIBs. And it turns out that there are real variations and there are differences across the cohorts in that. So we uh, assess that as well, parental issues with drinking and drugs and things like that. Then at the individual level of the, the child, in addition to characteristics I've already mentioned, we examined basically three sort of major constructs in, in the literature, aggression, antisocial behavior. So you can almost think of that as you know, early manifestations of delinquency, low self-control and anxiety, depression, measured in sort of using the state-of-the-art characteristics. And there's other family characteristics as well. There's something like I don't know, 50 variables. And then also neighborhood, which is really important. So poverty, racial composition, residential stability of the neighborhood. Then uh, we collected data on the violence rates in the neighborhood, robbery rates, murder rates, incarceration rates. Uh, we collected data on police intensity, we called it, in terms of the number of arrests and you name it. So it's really pretty much all the characteristics that we could measure and that are put forth in theories. And then to get to your question precisely, what we did was to set up a series of analyses of well, what was changing. So clearly crime was changing. So we collected data on violence and property arrests and drug arrests and disorderly arrests to test the idea that comes out of the incarceration literature that the drug war was a primary driver of increases in criminalization. We looked at the broken windows policing hypothesis, which is that the policing of disorderly type offenses was a policy shift that varied over time, which could have affected our kids. So we looked at those as well. And what we found is contrary to a lot of popular belief, disorderly conduct arrests and broken windows offenses actually started to decline dramatically in the kind of the middle part of the study went down about 90% actually. Furthermore, drug arrests also started to go down, but consistent with the drug war hypothesis in the early part, they were very high. And what we found, to make a long story short, we did a, an analysis that essentially estimated the proportion of the differences between the cohorts in their arrest rates that was due to drug arrests. We estimate that about half of the decline or the difference was due to drugs. Now, that's a pretty big chunk. So I would say that historians and others are correct on the drug war hypothesis. It's pernicious effects. It's racially disproportionate effects. It's all true. That said, that leaves 50% of the changes that we don't think can be attributed strictly to the drug war. And we think that's due to um, a variety of things, including shifts in actual criminal behavior and, and normative changes in society. And we estimate reported offenses, let's say, re reported by citizens in terms of serious offenses like violence, which were dropping at the rate of about 75%. So there were, there were real behavioral changes, in other words, that were going on. There's policy changes at the level of criminal justice system, but there are behavioral changes as well. Then there's the further question, which we didn't empirically examine because our data are not really set up to do it. But theoretically, we discuss, in addition to changes in policing, in addition to crime rate changes, 
thinking about things like the revitalization of many cities in terms of economic improvement. We looked at or, or to think about technology. And one thing that really differentiates these cohorts is the extent to which they were exposed to technology. I mean, literally, if you think about when iPhones and Facebook and all that came on, it really distinguishes some of the cohorts. It sounds perhaps a little silly, but technology, we think, has important effects in that it is related to, and research has shown this and new papers are coming out, the, the extent to which there's structured or unstructured socializing. So to the extent that someone uh, is at home in terms of the routine activities, there's less exposure to potential conflict. Increases in private security, surveillance, uh, we know that's uh, big. And also research has shown that the crime rate decline is in part due to increases in community-based organizations fighting back and their, their responses to the increases in crime in the 1990s. So all these things are happening, these technological shifts, changes in nonprofit community-based organizations fighting back against crime and policing changes. I think that this has been studied now for the crime declines going on a good 25 years. There's no consensus. So let's turn back now. You mentioned predictive technologies and the recent push towards using predictive technology in crime control and policing and judging. And I wonder how you think this study and your findings should impact the way we think about those technologies. Yeah, there's implications on a couple of different levels. One again is you can't think about prediction absent the, the concept of propensity in a way. I mean, it's, it's sort of built into the criminal justice system. It's not often sort of laid out in ways that are clear, but most of the indicators in the criminal justice system are linked back to this idea of the, you know, the character of the individual or the, the, the propensity of the individual. Scholars have already argued that, for example, arrest records baked into that, you can argue, is uh, racial bias right? in terms of racial discrimination and arrest. What we're saying is that we're sort of shifting it to consider another set of biases. Let's, let's think of it as cohort or historical biases on top of those others. And so the predictions themselves are biased. And what we're doing right now, analysis is showing that if you take, for example, the prediction model and you train it on our older cohorts and you do, we've done machine learning, all the fancy statistics, train it, and then you do the holdout samples and then you apply it to the younger cohorts, what you find is that you're, you're over-predicting by a substantial margin, the likelihood that people will get in jail. So the consequences are huge. So we're right now saying, well, we're going to use this instrument and we're going to train it, or it's been trained, but now it's being applied to a newer population. And in the future, and the future is changing in ways that will shift the effects as we show. In other words, it's not just that there's differences in crime rates, but we are also finding coefficient shifts, that's a technical term for changing a prediction of specific characteristics. And I mentioned some earlier ones like disadvantaged status, some other ones include immigrant status. And so I think that, yes, it's important to think about race and class, and gender biases and prediction and instrument, but this is, a, this is a level, you know, different than that. I personally, Think we should do away with prediction. I think it's a fundamentally flawed concept. And in fact, it's always based, it's always in a sense retrospective, right? Because it's based on some past event. So again, obvious in retrospect, but then why is it through history? We always use it to predict the future, but the future is changing. Uh, it will change, number one. But number two, even 
if uh, we do it at the moment, the, the factors that are being used, you know, baked into that are social changes. So it, it's a flawed concept. I don't really see why it should be used at some fundamental level, or at least I think we need to wake up and realize that some of the pronouncements in criminal justice reform are, are misguided in the sense of the promises that are being made, I think cannot be fulfilled. I think that's a good place to leave it. Is there anything that yeah, you think I should have asked about or, or that you think is worth mentioning that I didn't? No, I think you hit on a lot of the different points. It's really a story of a project that's been going on for 25 years. Yeah. And it's the story of the ambition of trying to link societal change with individual biography. I think people can resonate to that because our, our individual histories, our individual narratives are so much tied up to the historical context within which we occur. So in a sense, it's intuitive, but our policies and much of our research apparatus is set up to control that away. And I think we need we need to shift our thinking in that sense. Yeah, this is sort of a tangent, but I just finished reading Philip Roth's Plot Against America and the- uh, and Great the, book. Yeah, it was, it was a great summer read, but the main character has to come to terms with the idea of that history is acting upon him. Yeah. And- I think as in particular as Americans, it's very, it's easy to think that we are not the subject or the object of such big contextual factors. And I think it's really powerful to, you know, that your point that even in a 10 to 15 year period, history is acting on us and changing our contexts. No, you're absolutely right. And if you think about it, we're told time and time again, I mean, that's the American ideal, right? Is sort of, whether it's a grid or self-control or pulling yourself up, that, you know, it's, it's about the individual fighting to overcome that history. And I, I'm not denigrating that. I mean, look, these factors matter. But the point is, within the context you're doing that is, is determinative yeah. in, in hugely important ways. And so we, we need to foreground that more. Interestingly, as you just pointed out, literature is much better. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, it's much better at a lot of things. <laughs> Great. Well, this was terrific. Thank you so much. This was a totally different way of thinking about these criminogenic situations, I guess, is, or what I've heard. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a sociologist. So um, of what's sort of trickling out to me. So I really appreciate uh, you're taking the time to explain it to me. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully it made sense. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for taking the time and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks so much to Pottington Bear for composing our theme music, to the folks at PCJ for their help, and of course to you for listening. 